What we're going to do this morning as we are back in our sermon series going through the book of Hebrews... Uh, we are going to, hopefully, Lord willing, cover the rest of chapter 3. So roughly verses 7 down through the end of chapter 3. And then most of chapter number 4. And I think that is so because what we find here in this, this great section of this epistle is this wonderful theme that will, I think, really much come out in just a few moments. But actually, I want to start actually where the writer ends this section, which is actually in chapter 4, verse number 12. So go there for a second, because I think these verses, you know, uh, they will immediately be recognizable. You have perhaps memorized, or you're probably very familiar with the themes of these verses that I'm going to read in just a second. But in, in many ways, this serves as an encapsulating sort of bookend on what the writer's going to talk about throughout these couple chapters. So notice chapter number 4 verse 12 where the writer compares the word of God, the scriptures, as he says, to a two-edged sword. Notice, for the word of God, he says, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Here what the writer does is he's putting forth, he's establishing the fact that the scriptures are self-evident of themselves. They are truth. And they bring truth to our ears and to our lives every time they are expounded, every time they are read. And this is so because, as he says, the word of God is not just a dead ancient book. It's not just like a piece of parchment that you read. It's a a book that's living, as he says. It's active. It literally means it has strength and it's full of energy is essentially what that word active means. And it's able, that strength and energy, we could say, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that word can, as he says, penetrate to the deepest parts of who we are. When the word of God is opened and expounded rightly and faithfully, no one stands. It cuts through all of our bias. It cuts through all of our masks. It cuts through all of those things that we put up and we say, look at how good we are. All those pretensions. And as it says, it leaves everyone naked and exposed. Words, I think, which the writer used purposefully to make his audience sort of get a little squirmy. Because that's how strong, that's how forceful, that's how authoritative this word is. The writer wants his readers and us too, I would say, included in that, to be awestruck at this profound authority that God's word has. No other book is like it. It's because it's a living, it's an active book. (laughs) And we, we, we know the scriptures, you know, 2 Timothy, where it talks about that all of scripture is profitable for teaching and reproving correction and all that. But, and we also confess that the scriptures, or hopefully you've confessed this before, that the scriptures are breathed out by God, as that verse says. Which just means that all of these scriptures, all these pages of the Bible are not just man-made inventions, they are divinely inspired The the books that make up your Bible are not uh, books that man has written of his own will and wisdom and might. It's, It's God using man to tell a very specific narrative. And I think what is awesome is that you can see that idea 
That it's God using scripture, using man to write scripture, to tell a very specific story. I think we can see that almost nowhere better than in these two chapters. Because the way in which the Hebrew writer, he's writing this letter to this congregation, this church. But he's using Old Testament scripture to prove his point. And in fact, what we're going to see from verse 7 of chapter 3 all the way through verse 11 of chapter 4. What the writer does is he's quoting, he's citing from Psalm 95. And he's demonstrating a really critical point about faith, about salvation, about doctrine, about what it means to be in the church at all. I think what's so profound about what he's doing, if you just kind of boil it down, if you just kind of realize exactly what he's doing. So the writer in Hebrews is quoting from David in Psalm 95, who himself in Psalm 95 is referencing Moses in Numbers 14. (laughs) So you have all of these different passages and truths and applications and stories coming together to where the writer is going to make a point about Jesus. <laughs> See, this is always what's happening when you're reading the Bible. This is, this, is, this is what's fascinating. This is awesome to think about. When you're reading the scriptures, there's not just one layer of truth that's being unfolded before you. There's actually multiple. We could say it like this way. The Bible is not flat. It's not like a, a history textbook. There's facts and stories and here's this, this article about this some such war and this general. It's a flat book that just presents you these stories. When you're reading the Bible, it's dynamic and it is deep and it envelops us in truth that is very much multi-layers deep. What do I mean by that? Well, when you're reading the Bible, a couple of things to keep in mind is just the fact that when you're reading history, you're reading about, yes, truth of historical events that have happened. You're reading about some such king going up against some such nation and there's a war. There's a truth that's that layer, yes. It's historical truth, we could say. Things that are factual. But then there's also another layer of truth that is always happening in Scripture. We could call it the orchestrated truth, or we could say revealed truth, or we could even call it redemptive truth. Because everywhere, everywhere you turn in the Bible, you are reading, yes, of a historical thing that has happened, but you're also reading about something that God is putting into place. He's orchestrating these events to unfold according to his purposes, and that way we are ushered further and further into realizing the truth of redemption that starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation. It's redemption all the way through that he is orchestrating, that he is bringing about. That's why... When you're reading the books of history, like First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel, there's going to be parts of history that aren't there. It, one of the most fascinating things. This is this is this is extra. When I, when I was going through First and Second Kings, I remember going through it and reading and realizing that there's parts of history that the historical writer there is skipping. He's just jumping over it. And you would say, well, why is he doing that? Because he's not writing a history book. He's writing a book that reveals something, not about us, it can, but really he's writing a book that reveals something about our God and the God who is providentially orchestrating all these things about. And he's writing it for an audience so they can say, look at what God's hand has done. When you're reading the Bible, that's exactly what we're seeing. God's hand behind all of these events of history and drama and all of those things. The Bible is not flat. It's a deep book. 
a book that tells God's story. If you just flip through the pages, it's not just like flipping again through a history textbook with just data and facts and people and events and stories and battles. It's a book that tells the story about how God, the God who spoke this universe into existence, has made a way for wicked sinners such as you and such as me can be saved, can be redeemed, can be snatched out of eternal death and destruction. That's the story that the Bible tells. And it's revealing that all the time from page one to the end of the book. And I say all that to say that that's what the writer is going to demonstrate for us in these two chapters. Because at first you would say, how in the world does verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4, which talk about this superior word, this authoritative word, how do they fit? They almost appear disjointed from the rest of his discussion. Because really what he's going to talk about in chapters 3 and 4 is this idea of coming into God's rest. Of entering into that rest. Of entering into the promised land. Those are the themes. And then suddenly he backs it all up with this, this word of God is living and active. And he talks about that. How does that fit? Well I think it fits precisely because he's showing us that this word isn't man made. It's not constructed by man's design or wisdom or devices. It's a word that has been given, that has been inspired, and that has been written, we could say, by God himself. And I think that it comes about in the very first phrase of verse number 7 of chapter 3. So go Hebrews 3, look at verse 7. Notice how the writer is going to introduce the story that he's going to want to tell. Because again, he's trying to envelop this church in the truth of God and the truth of the fact that they are in the story that God is telling. That God has been telling from the very beginning. And notice what he says. Therefore, he says, verse 7, that as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. As we said, he's quoting from a psalm of David, Psalm 95. But instead of saying, remember what David says, what does he say? As the Holy Spirit says. Which he's already revealing his cards. He's already showing us and this audience that's reading this letter that the scriptures that I'm reading from, Psalm 95, is a direct quote from the Holy Spirit. Not just man's made up wisdom or anything like that. It's from God himself. He understands the Psalms to be scripture and authoritative. You can see he's already seeing the Bible as a living and active thing. He sees it as relevant. He sees it not just as a loosely collected anthology of myths that help us live better moral lives. He is already sort of revealing his cards that this, these are words of God that reveal him, that reveal his truth, that reveal his characteristics. As the Holy Spirit says. Again, I think if you... Keep all of that in mind. It'll change the way you read the Bible. Because it's not just history. It's not just application to us. It's revelation from God himself. Showing us who he is. And what he's like. And how he has made everything to come about. As it was from before the foundation of the world. And here we could say. As he introduces the scripture to them. This writer does. He was wanting these Hebrew believers to read the words of David as if they were written for them. 
As if God was speaking directly to them, which he was, again, through the word. As the Holy Spirit says, it's almost as if he's a preacher standing up before this church. And he's saying, as the Holy Spirit says, this is what the Holy Spirit says to you right now. Even though he said it ages ago through David, he's saying it again to us right now. And exactly the same thing is happening this morning. When you read the Bible, it's not just ancient stories that happened a long time ago. It's a living, active book that speaks directly to us right here, right now in 2023. That's why I get, I get all squirmy when I hear about preachers and pastors trying to make the Bible more relevant. You don't have to. It's already perfectly relevant as it is. Just open it up and preach it. It speaks to us right where we are. It speaks to you right where you've been. As the Holy Spirit says, as the writer says, it's meant to say that the scriptures are speaking as if it's God's voice. So we could ask the question, what is he saying? And here, in these two chapters, he's saying something monumental about faith, about religion, about salvation. But also what he's going to do is he's going to juxtapose all of that against this most monumental event in Israel's history. And what is that? So notice verse 7 again. Let's introduce this story. You can flip to Psalm 95 if you want to. Uh, you can read it here, Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, or Psalm 95, 7 through 11. It's the same, it's the same thing. And what he's doing is this. Notice. The writer of the Hebrews says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Both here. And in Psalm 95, the, the event at the heart of both passages is the same. It's that event at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 13 and 14. Which you, you could read about there. Is that, uh, well, let me go there and we'll, we'll just camp out there for a second. Keep your place in Hebrews 3 and go to with me to Numbers 13 and 14. Because in both instances, he's making reference to this story. Of, a familiar story, you'll probably remember it. There's children's songs about it, but just to get you uh, sort of situated here, uh, if you remember, uh, the Israelites had endured centuries of tyranny. They were under Egyptian rule. They were slaves in the service of Pharaoh, under oppression, under violence, under the hands of those wicked overlords. But then what happened? God raised up Moses and Moses became the deliverer of God's people. And he leads them out of Egypt in the Exodus, out of slavery. And all the time what's happening, God is demonstrating his might and his concern for his people. Not only by raising up Moses, by what? By leading them through the plagues, through all of those horrible things that came upon the land of Egypt. God was preserving his people. And then they come to the Red Sea and it appears impossible that they're ever going to get out of this. And then what happens? God makes a way. God delivers his people. He's showcasing his might. He's showcasing his mercy. He's showcasing his compassion and his devotion to his people. He did not want them to, he wanted to bless them. He wanted to bring them to a specific place that he had prepared for them. But it didn't take long, if you know the story. 
for the people of Israel to start complaining and griping and moaning and whining. Like your kids in the back seat. As they're going to a place and it seems like it's taking forever. And you've barely made it out of your driveway. And that's what the Israels are like. Are we there yet? They say basically. And they start complaining. They start griping. They start moaning. And it it didn't take long at all. So in Numbers 13, we're, we're right after the events of, of, of Sinai and, and all of that stuff. The Ten Commandments, the Golden Calf and all those things. And they're brought to the border of Canaan. The land that God has been leading them to. The land that Abraham was promised to inherit many, many centuries before this particular moment. And what happened? I'm not going to sing the song, but you probably know the song. Twelve spies went to Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good. That's the story. Twelve spies go, they go to spy out the land, and the ten come back with that really dismal report. Notice Numbers, uh, verse, or Numbers 13, look at verse 30. They have this report, it's, we can't conquer the land, and notice Caleb stands up. He's one of the good spies who comes back, and notice this says, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, the land, for we are well able to overcome it. That the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. And so they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who comes from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said one to another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. These words we should just pause and let it sink in what they've just declared. Not only have they declared a vote of no confidence in Moses. We've got to get him out. Let's get another leader. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's in over his head. Look at where he's brought us to. But also now, did you hear what they said? It'd be better if we went back into bondage. It would be better if we went back into that time and that place of tyranny and oppression and being pillaged by all the Egyptians who could just take whatever they want. It's better back then than it is here. You want to talk about blindness. You want to talk about unbelief. You want to talk about despair. That's this right here. They're standing on the borders of the land that God has promised to them through the Abrahamic covenant. A truth that has been at the core, at the center of Israelite life. And there on the borders they're saying, no, no, it's too much. We can't do it. They'd rather go back. No wonder... God says in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 10 that he was provoked. That is, he was disgusted by that generation. He was disgusted by them and their unbelief, their their unfaith. And as a result, as you perhaps know, this generation was forbidden from entering that land. Notice Numbers verse 14, Numbers 14 verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned. 
according to your word. So what happens is uh, God uh, opens up and he says, I'm going to wipe out this generation. And then Moses sort of acts as an intercessor. He pleads with God to have mercy. And so God is answering him and he says, okay, I'll have mercy. But he says, verse 21, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness... And have yet put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice. None of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. Notice verse 28. Say to them as I live declares the Lord what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and the Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead body shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness. Until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. That's a thud of a word from God. He's disgusted, yes, but what is he disgusted by? Their unbelief. They saw, they spied out, and they didn't believe in God's promise. They didn't believe that God would be with them. It was unbelief through and through. And because of their unbelief, these people of God wander the wilderness for 40 years. They were right at the doorstep. And God takes them around the mulberry bush, so to speak, and to get back to where they are 40 years later. All because they did not believe. They did not believe that they could occupy the land that God said he would give them. And it's not as if they had no reason to believe God. They did. They had all the reason in the world. They were witnesses of God's power and God's grace constantly. The exodus, the plagues, the Red Sea, the pillars of cloud and of fire that led them through those days after they got out of the exodus. The manna, every single where, they, every single place that they could turn themselves, they saw God's power being evidence for them. And yet they didn't believe. And that's why Caleb and Joshua, Numbers 14, verses, verse 8, look at where Caleb and Joshua, they come back and they're trying to get the people, they're trying to get them to believe. Notice what he says, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Honey, Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. You can almost see Caleb and Joshua saying, we have evidences to believe in God, to believe in Yahweh. Don't disbelieve his word. These people, are they may appear formidable. They may appear like strong and mighty, but we have Yahweh. Do not fear them. They are as bread. They are as nothing to us. Well, they weren't having it, of course. The people of Israel are overcome by what the Hebrew writer will call an evil and unbelieving heart, which resulted in an entire generation being uh, abandoning God's truth, abandoning God's promise, and wandering in the wilderness for 
40 years. It's a familiar story. And the point of all of that is, is, is truly remarkable because the Hebrew writer, go back with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Because the Hebrew writer is basically saying this. You're facing the same dilemma. You are facing the same opportunity to choose between belief and unbelief. Because notice, after he records that story, so he, he, he recites Psalm 95 in verses 7 through 11, and then notice verse 12 of chapter 3. He says, take care. Watch out. Pay attention. See to it, brothers and sisters in Christ, lest there be in, in, be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, just like the one that was evidenced at Kadesh Barnea. Leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another, encourage one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He's telling them the same dilemma is one that is right in front of you this morning. There's one that is right in front of you right now. If you remember, as we've said, this church was under a lot of tension, a lot of trepidation. This was a church under pressure, not perhaps oppression as it was in the days of Egypt for the Israelites. But it was, yes, persecution on the horizon and perhaps even there. People being taken out of their assemblies and being cast into Roman Colosseums for sport. You could imagine them having the same sort of conversations in their head. The same sort of, uh, sort of doubts in their head that began to lead them on a path of questioning God's power and presence and promise. Just like the people at Kadesh Barnea where they're seeing the land of Canaan and they say, no, nope, it's too much. You could imagine the church seeing all that's going on around them and saying, nope, it's too much. And the writer is saying, you have the same dilemma in front of you. And his question basically is this. Are you going to let the same debacle of disbelief happen again? Are you going to repeat in the same pattern of rebellion and rejection of God and rejection of God's truth? Are you going to repeat the same fiasco of unfaith as your forefathers did? For people that have been invested in the history of Israel. Again, Hebrew Christians, they know their national history. You can imagine what the power that illustration would have on them. This monumental moment, a turning point in the history of Israel. And here he's using it to say, it's right here before you again. This church was at risk of forfeiting the rest that was offered to them. In God's word and spirit. Because as he says. The same promise. The same good news. That was given to the people. At Kadesh Barnea. In the wilderness. On the borders of the land of promise. Was still in effect. That same good news was still in effect. Still stood for them. Same promise. Same good news. That as he says. Invited them to have a share in Christ. And enter as he says. The rest of God. Notice chapter number 4. Notice what he says. Chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore. 
While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. Here, from chapter, the beginning of chapter 4 through the end, You're going to see a word that's repeated over and over again. It's that word rest. It appears actually 10 times in 11 verses. As he's talking about this idea of the rest of God. Which has in some circles been an elusive idea. An elusive truth to try to nail down exactly what the writer is here meeting. But I think it's actually not so complicated. When you keep in mind all of these layers of truth that I think the writer is here bringing before the people. The word rest itself is a word that just simply means the state of being settled. It's a word that you could say, it's a a word that's meaning to apply this feeling of the work is finished. You do a job, the job is done, and you say, it is done, it is finished. The job has been completed. That's that's the feeling, that's the, the meaning behind that word. Settledness, finishedness. And such is why in verse number four, he quotes from Genesis chapter two. Notice what he says in verse four. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. He's adding sort of a definition, you could say, to that word rest. It's like when God rested after creating the universe. (laughs) He's... Using it to sort of explain the the rest that he's talking about. Of course, if you remember, if you know your scriptures, you know that God was, in the beginning, was God. He spoke and the universe came into being. He spoke everything into existence for six days, making all that we see. And on the seventh day, what? No creation. He rested. And was he, was he tired? Was he worn out? No, he wasn't weary. He wasn't worn out. He wasn't exhausted from the work. It was a rest of what? Of finishedness. The creation was finished. And he rested in order to set up what? A pattern for you and for me. For all creatures everywhere. For, to what? To have a day of rest that was created in us. So that we could see that we are not our own. Why do we have a day of rest in our patterns of life because it was planted there by the creator himself as a reminder that we are not independent autonomous beings we were put here by a creator one who has designed everything to be but also sort of as a token as a way in which he could get us to see that there's something that God is bringing into the world again a day of eternal rest so you can see here what is let's try and wrap our minds around what he's talking about He's talking about the people of God not being able to enter into the land of promise. Now he's talking about this idea of entering into rest. Remember, there's layers of truth to what everywhere is being sort of expounded and put forth in the scriptures. So let's, let's try and break it down. For the people of Israel at Sinai, remember where that first command of God was given to what? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. For them, what? Rest would be the rest of God in the rest of the Sabbath. 
which put in them the rhythm of their creator that no more work needs to be done on this day because this day we remember that we were created and our enoughness is in our creator. For the people of Israel in Numbers chapter 14, the rest of God was what? A literal rest that was to be given to them when they occupied the land of promise. There they would be settled. There the exodus, we could say, could be finished. Because they would occupy the land that God had given to them. They would enter into God's rest. For the people of Israel in Psalm 95, the rest of God was, we could say, a symbolical rest. Given to them as they trusted in the promise of the new covenant. What was the new covenant? David's assurance that he and his bloodline would have a king on the throne forever. And there in Psalm 95 he is calling the people to enter into the rest of believing in the covenant promise. And here that brings us all the way to chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews. Where the rest of God we could say is the assurance that's given to one and to all. To all who believe that the rest of God is found in the passion and resurrection of Christ. You see there's all these layers to what he's talking about when he's talking about rest. Not just entering a land of promise, literally, but what that means, what that signifies, what that points us to. And here, he's trying to say, all of it has meant to point you to this. It's meant to point you to Jesus. He's God's true and better rest for you. You see, the rest of the Sabbath, that literal day that you were supposed to take apart, and uh, you're supposed to set aside and rest on, and the rest that was coming to the people of God through the land of promise, all of those things were just but echoes of what Jesus has given us in the rest of his righteousness. Because notice chapter number 4, verse 8. Notice what he says. For if Joshua had given them the rest of God, God would not have spoken of another day later on. You can see his point. Joshua, he did lead the people into rest. So if that's all that God had ever promised his people, everything would be finished in Joshua. But there was a deeper rest. And how does he know that? Because God spoke of it in Psalm 95. There was another rest to come. So it's not just Joshua that we look to, even though that rest was real and it was true for the people of God. He really did lead them into the promised land, but there's something deeper that the people of God needed. God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then notice what he says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Just like God the Father Rested after the work of creation was done, so too did God the Son rest after the work of crucifixion was done. What were his final words? Remember, it is finished. And with that, everything was done. Everything was accomplished. All was finished in him. And it's only by believing, he says, it's only by trusting in that promise that is held out to you and who Jesus is and it's what he has done. That's how you enter into the rest of God. And again, you could apply it to every single one of these situations. How were the people of God to enter the land of promise? By believing God's word of promise. How were the people of God to cling to the covenantal blessings of God's word by believing in God's word of promise? How was this church 
in Hebrews to endure hardship and hold fast to their original confidence to the end by believing in God's word of promise. And so therefore what the Hebrew writer has just done and he's shown that the only thing that shuts out anyone from the blessing of God shuts out anyone from the rest of God is their own unbelief. And the only thing, by contrast, that brings us into, that brings us into the great rest, eternal rest of God is belief. Which brings us to today. Because just like the Hebrew writer, I would say to each and every one of you this morning, you have the same dilemma facing you here today. The same choice. The same opportunity. How do you rest In the rest of God. How do you enter into that? What does that even mean? Is there something that we have to do? What is the requirement? What's the bar? Do we have to work for this rest? Do we have to labor for it? You might be given to think that way. If you read verse number 11 of chapter 4. In just a brief way. Notice what he says. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. It sounds nonsensical, doesn't it? How do you strive to enter into rest? Doesn't the striving negate the resting? What is he talking about there? But the writer, I think, frames it this way, this good news of God's rest on purpose. Because I think he knows the people of God in a very specific way. He knows them in a very pointed way. And I would say that um, he knows us. And he speaks to us through the word of God. Remember the word of God is living and active. And and it pierces to the deepest parts of who we are. Which is why I can say. That the hardest work that you and I. Will ever be called to do. Is to believe. That everything is done already. That it is finished. It actually takes striving. Why does he say let us strive. To enter into that rest. Because he knows the heart of man. (laughs) It actually takes striving to believe that the only requirement for entry into the rest of God is simple belief. We have to have some sort of, we have to have skin in the game. We have to have some part to play. Martin Luther says that to be convinced in our hearts that we have been forgi- that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. And that's why we have to have this word come to us again. We have to have this choice in front of us again. It's a choice of belief versus unbelief. The gospel, the good news, is the promise of God's everlasting, eternal rest that is given to each and every single one of us, provided that we believe. Jesus says, six, John 6, 29, this is the work of God, that you believe on him who he has sent. His disciple, John, in 1 John 3.23, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of, of his Son, Jesus Christ. You can see, he's bringing the people to this, this, this sort of fork in the road. Are you going to believe? Or are you going to disbelieve? Are you going to believe that entering that rest is, 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 is met in Jesus and now you can enter through belief? Are you going to turn away? And then there's a very common objection. That sounds too good to be true. All I have to do is believe and I enter into this rest, the rest of God's righteousness. It does sound too good to be true. That's the good news. That's the gospel. 
It's way better than we deserve and way better than we could ever come up with. We need good news that's too good to be true. But the reality is, it is true in Jesus Christ. And by saying such things and by thinking that we need to, we need to go a different way. There's, there's got to be a better way into the land of promise through this. Or there's got to be something else. By saying such things, you know what the writer is basically here saying? That we are not just demonstrating unbelief, demonstrating disobedience. We're also rehearsing and repeating the same debacle at Kadesh Barnea all over again. He's telling them that if you think that the rest of God, the settledness of God that he invites us to have a share in, if you think that that's not finished, that it's not complete, and that you are required to finish it by what you do, that is the epitome of unbelief. But it's also you're, you're, you're doing the same thing that the people of God did in Numbers 13 and 14. You're saying it's better That we go into bondage. It's better that we go back. To thinking that we have to do something. We have to fulfill a condition. To secure our entrance. Into God's rest. In so doing. You have hardened your heart. Hardened yourself to the word of God. And the word of his promise. And fallen away from him. See my friends. With the same level of urgency, I say to you as this writer of Hebrews says. See to it that you do not fall away from the living God. Hebrews 3.13. But exhort one another every day. As long as it's called today. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And what is the deceitfulness of sin? That you have to do something to enter rest. That you have to make it happen. That you have to make it so. That you have to accomplish something. And the deceitfulness of sin says, nah, that land is not able to be occupied by us. And so we turn away. That's the deceitfulness of sin. And that's why we need the gospel every day. Because we are just like these forgetful Israelites, this forgetful church. And we need it every day to remember that the word of God's promise is the word of truth. It's the word that invites us to enter into that rest. Provided only that we believe in the one who he has sent. Do not be deceived, my friends. The only requirement to enter into the rest of God, both in the here and now, in the right here, right now, but also in the hereafter, that future hope of future rest, the only thing that is required of us to enter into that is what? Is to believe in the it is finishedness of the cross. To believe that it really is, truly, really is done. That Jesus did it all. And you can see the writer is trying to sell them, this is what I've been telling you. This is what I've been trying to get you to see. That the offer of the gospel is on the table. And your belief brings you into entrance into that rest. And by turning away and disbelieving, you're repeating the same debacle at Kadesh Barnea all over again. That's what's at stake. He's telling them. Don't just listen to that news, my friends. Believe it. Notice what he says again. uh, Hebrews 4.2. For good news came to us. Just as it did to them. The people of Israel. They had the good news. They had God's evidences of deliverance. And grace and promise. But notice what he says. But the message they heard did not benefit them. It It did not reach them. Because they were not united by faith. With those who listened. For we who have believed. Enter that rest. 
It's not just listening. Believing. You can listen to uh, words of hundreds of preachers on podcasts and interviews and sermons, however much you want. But until you believe that this word is true, it's not just true in the sense that it's true like a history textbook, but it's true for you, you will not enter the rest of God. Because the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces to the deepest part of who you are. And it knows when you're faking it. It knows when you're pretending. It knows when you're putting on a mask. It knows when you've given in to the deceitfulness of sin. It knows. The word of God knows. The spirit of God knows. And it cuts through all of that. My friends, to you here this morning, the promise of entering into God's rest still stands. And what does it sound like? It sounds like Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are laboring and are heavy laden, and what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. No other religion has that. No other religion has that. This is, we could, I, I can say, it's exclusive to Christianity, to a belief in that Jesus is the Savior. Every other system of spirituality is going to remix, be a remix on some such thing that sounds like work harder, do better, try more, earn your way into paradise. Case in point, you want to know what Buddha's last words were? Behold... Oh monks, this is my last advice to you. Work hard to gain your own salvation. What were Jesus' last words? It is finished. That's the gift of who he is. He says, come all you who are laboring and heavy laden to find your own way into the rest that I have given to you in myself. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to try hard to get it. I am it. And I'm giving it to you by giving you myself. My friends, my friends, are you resting in the rest of God today? This is what's on the table, just like it was for this church. It's a promise that it comes to us in the gospel of Christ crucified that gives us a future of rest. Yes, we look forward to that day when this earth will be made new and we will be in the literal rest of the new heavens and the new earth. But it's also a promise of rest that informs how we rest in the here and now. It might not be giants. That are causing you to disbelieve God's promise as it was for the people of Israel in Numbers. But maybe it's something else. Maybe you've fallen out with a family member. Maybe you're, you're quarreling with a group of friends. Maybe you've received the most unnerving medical report of your life. You have no idea. No idea what the future holds for you. Maybe you've seen a pile of bills mount and there's a daunting financial future for you and you don't know if you can make it. Maybe you've been the target of some very upsetting rumors from your peers and from your classmates and from your friends. Whatever it is, it's the deceitfulness of sin that wants you to disbelieve in the promise of God. It wants you to disbelieve that the rest of Jesus isn't enough. Whatever it is, it's a heavy load. 
It's a load that Jesus has invited all of us to lay at his feet and enter into his rest. My friends, that's the offer on the table for you and for me and for everyone. It's the rest of God that is in his righteousness, that it comes through his shed blood. And he says, believe and it is done. That's what we have. That's what we believe. My friends, are you resting in God this morning? No, I can't give you words that can take away all of your problems. I, I can't cut through all of your nightmares and give you the right way to think about things. I can give you Jesus. I can give you good news. That even though all around you is swirling with chaos and confusion and there's bad reports like those at Kadosh Barnea and you're being tempted to disbelieve in God's good news. Maybe, maybe we should go back. Maybe we should go a different way. Maybe I should do something else. Maybe I should leave this church or, or maybe I should go this way or maybe I... The word of God pierces through all of that and it reminds us what? Find your rest in the rest of God. Which is found in Jesus. And it's given to you as a gift. You don't have to scratch and climb and, and crawl your way to it. It is open for you. Like his wounds, like his side. My friends, that's who Jesus is. He is our true and our better rest. Are you resting in your rest today? In the rest that is given to you in Jesus. I pray that you are. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.